This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the AEC Engineering and Technology Podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping engineering professionals find technology that fits their needs. This podcast is the ninth episode in our 10-episode series called Unveiling Tech Horizon. Throughout the series, we will revolutionize AEC consulting by delving into cutting-edge technology such as AI, BIM, digital twins, PM resourcing tools, and in this episode, I will be speaking with Adam Tank, co-founder and chief customer officer at Transcend, about the application of generative design technology and its impact on our critical infrastructure. With that, let's jump into today's episode. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. And then thank you again for, for joining us today. And we've got a action-packed one here, so we're just going to get right into it. So, Adam, your career journey has been quite impressive so far, from co-founding a VC-backed startup to leading the digital water division at General Electric. Can you take us through the key milestones and experiences that have led you to your current role as a co-founder and chief customer officer at Transcend? Yeah, so I will I will say that I never knew that I would be in the infrastructure industry and certainly didn't know that I would be in software at all when I started my career. I was actually trained as a microbiologist coming out of college and had no appreciation for the built world and really business in general. I thought I was going to go to medical school. But one of the biggest milestones or turning points that happened in my career was that a friend of mine invited me to pitch at an entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship competition at our college. And I had no, I couldn't even spell entrepreneurship when he invited me to do this. And he was a business student. Obviously, I was a sciences, sciences major. And he said, I don't need you to do anything other than come and pitch at this competition. I'll create the business plan. I've already got the idea. I'll prototype it. I just need you to come and show up well in front of the judges because you can speak and I can't. I was like, you know what? What the hell? Let's give it a shot. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm sure that I can get up and present if you give me enough data. So we ended up presenting this this idea that he had and ended up winning this competition. So here I am, the second semester of my senior year, and my whole world is rocked because I'm introduced to this concept of entrepreneurship and small business, which is not something that my family had ever done. It's not something that I was taught about in college. And that's what really set me off on this journey of being more of a, like an, uh, call it an innovator, if you will. And so I went to work for a Fortune 500 after I graduated. That idea that we had basically went nowhere. We got our giant novelty check and cashed it and who knows what happened to that money. And I went to work for a Fortune 500, wasn't a big fan. And I determined that I was far more interested in the, in the sales and marketing side of business than I was in the engineering and sciences side. And so through a series of very fortunate events, I ended up working with, at General Electric in their water division. And I was looking at investing in early stage water tech companies as an investor at GE. And this idea around how fundamentally broken our infrastructure is, our critical infrastructure is in the US, but really globally, really came to a head. And I'm not going to bore you with statistics, but I learned that over 30% on average of the water that's treated for drinking or use inside of a business or a home is lost before it gets to the end user. 
So 30% is lost somewhere in between. And we have no clue what happens to it. And that, that statistic was just so shocking to me because we talk about water scarcity. We talk about all these challenges related to water wells going dry. You see all these videos and, and photos of lakes that are being drained in these, you know, these boats from the 1800s that are now coming up because they've only recently been exposed. And I'm thinking, what the hell? If we're losing 30% of our water, something needs to be done about this. So another major turning point in my career was the GE and Elson internal Shark Tank style competition. And I'm sure you're familiar with the show Shark Tank. These entrepreneurs go and present their ideas to a panel of judges. So GE invited anyone in the company to submit ideas. And if this person won, they would actually fund it out of GE Ventures and they could spin it out of GE and run it as a startup in Silicon Valley. So I ended up winning this competition with this concept of a robot that could go into water pipelines, detect leaks, and then patch them from the inside. So I moved to Silicon Valley. I raised money out in the valley. And then a couple of years later, that, that, that startup was actually acquired after we developed our prototype robot. And so I was sitting back thinking, all right, I've done the entrepreneurship thing. It's a ton of fun. I'd like to do that again, but I really don't know what, what idea I have or what would be a good next step. And at that time, an old colleague from GE called and said, hey, we're getting ready to spin a software business out of a parent company and run it as a startup. Are you interested? And I asked what they did. And he told me that they had developed a platform that effectively automates the design of the built world. And I was quite hesitant, really dubious. In 2014, 2015, I had heard a lot of AI ML startups pawn their wares to GE. A lot of people talking about automation and the power of AI and all this, but it was a lot of smoke and no fire. But I ended up doing some diligence with this company not only the team, but the but the customers. And I found out that it was in fact true. They had built a platform that automated, fully automated the conceptual design of, in this case, wastewater treatment plants. And so I felt like it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so we started this company Transcend in 2019 and haven't looked back. Awesome. So you guys were, right? And just going back to that point about Shark Tank, right? Such a such an interesting and, and entertaining show. So you guys were basically, right, you were pitching the the sharks, right, at GE, but how, how exactly did that go? Like, was it like a certain team within GE that was kind of judging the merits of the ideas that were that were brought? Yeah, so this was for the robot company. And the for the robot business, it was a team of folks from GE Ventures. So they're the internal venture capital arm of GE. The CMO at, of GE at the time, so Beth Comstock, and then a handful of other folks that GE had partnered with to run this competition. And so they took I don't know, something like maybe a thousand ideas or a couple thousand ideas from all across the company. They down-selected to 10. And then those 10 of us went to 30 Rock in New York City and presented to this group of folks. Basically like pitched our, it was like a, I don't know, maybe a three-minute pitch or a five-minute pitch, something like that. And at the end of it, they they selected the winner from there. It's amazing, right? And it, and it just goes to show the amount of innovation that's happening in the built environment. And, and you've given a couple examples, right? The robotics company within GE as a larger company, right? And now Transcend, which was, you know, right? Sounds like it was just born out of a larger, uh, maybe more traditional, um, maybe engineering firm, let's say. But these opportunities are about and for anybody that's listening, right? Just listen to what Adam's saying and realize that there also may be opportunity where you're at as well. It's just, right? You gotta, you gotta figure out where, where you're at and, and kind of what ideas might be there. But Adam, let's talk about like kind of the AI piece of this, right? And maybe you can help us 
clarify for the audience some of the differences, right? But what is generative design technology and how is it being applied in critical infrastructure, particularly in the field of water and power, right? And what is the relationship between generative design and AI? So generative design at the highest level, as we define it, and as our partners like Autodesk define it, is a tool where a computer or set of computers generate an output on behalf of the user without human intervention. So in our case, with a limited number of inputs, a user can press a button, a bunch of data goes to the cloud, and then in the cloud, software actually generates a full set of engineering outputs. So in our case, a 30% design for a wastewater treatment plant would be things like a design, a basis document, a technical description, an equipment list, a load list, a piping and instrumentation diagram, and a 3D model. And these are generated in Microsoft Word, Excel, AutoCAD, and in Revit. So it's the computer actually doing the work on behalf of the user, creating the, the designs, generating the designs without a human actually opening up an application and doing that work themselves. For many generative design applications, there are components that are AI-enabled or powered by AI. Um, and that could be across many different facets of the tool. So if you look at something like ChatGPT, you're looking at it in real time generating text based on a specific prompt. And they're actually utilizing AI to go and search a bunch of data that's out there and recognize patterns and pick out components of it and then have it make sense in an interface that you and I can read as humans. In our case, we use AI in a very narrow sense, and it's specifically around the arrangement of buildings on a site. So once a computer understands the space it has to work with from a topographical point of view and the buildings that need to go on that site, it starts to use artificial intelligence to figure out what's the best fit of these buildings on a site based on the parameters of the constraints that you've given me. So in our case, you mentioned the industries. Wastewater, we do it for wastewater treatment plants. Water, we do it for uh, water treatment plants and some other assets like pump stations, lift stations, storage tanks. And we also did the generative design of electrical substations. So pretty wide, kind of a pretty wide range of, of different types of infrastructure, right? But it does sound like you guys started with water, wastewater, at least in the beginning. That's right. That's right. Our bread and butter was in water, wastewater. We were born out of a wastewater treatment company. And what we have found, Nick, that's really important in this whole discussion around generative design and AI and right, a lot of other buzzwords is that when you're building something in the physical world, so in your case, we could talk parking garages, we could talk hospitals, we talk about roads, bridges, whatever. The foundation is in math, science, physics, engineering. It's literally in calculations that you can find in textbooks in many cases or in white papers and it's really important to note that when the infrastructure you're building is relied upon by millions and millions of people this isn't just a, a piece of text coming from chat gpt this is literally a building that someone lives in or a building that somebody parks in it has to work it has to be sound so software like ours and others that are responsible for helping design the built world have to be based in reality. So the reason that we started out in wastewater was because we had wastewater engineers who had designed and constructed these facilities for many years of their career, sitting next to computer programmers 
that could take real engineering logic and expertise and turn it into code. So that way, you know, when you build something like a wastewater treatment plant, it's actually based in reality. It's not based on some random thing that some computer just came up with out of the blue. It's based on real logic and expertise. Right. And I, and I say like, and I joke that, you know, it's like when, when you start getting into an industry like ours, Adam, right. It's not just like, yeah, shoot me off a picture of a, right. A, a cat riding a horse, with cowboy, <laughs> something, something crazy or silly. Right. Because like what we're doing, like, it, and, and the technology itself is very cool. Right. Cause there's even applications for our industry of like, in that example I gave, right. Text to image. But there's a, I think there's a, a tone of seriousness, maybe that we're, we're used to that maybe hasn't caught on in the mainstream of these like AI or generative applications. That's, I completely agree with you. Cause most of the time they're not being used to design critical, what we call critical infrastructure. They're used to being, you know, designed like a, maybe a software program. And so you're, you're using it to fill gaps in your code or you're doing exactly like you said, text to image, text to video, um, text to music, you know, you can do all kinds of fun things and some of them are highly useful. But when it comes to the built world and things that have to be insured and things that have to be stamped and drawings that have to be reviewed, you, you this isn't something to play around with. Agreed. And now, right, we're seeing these generative design tools gain traction. So who would you say are best suited to use these tools and what advantages do they bring to the table that might take some time to be obvious? Yeah, I think the, you know, I'm maybe a bit biased and probably um, looking through rose-colored glasses here, but I think that today the best fit for these types of tools are in the early phases of projects. And in my case, in critical infrastructure, in our case, critical infrastructure, we're talking about the conceptual design phase. So we're talking about the phase where you're assessing all the different options that you have available to you, ideally to come up with the best outcome before this thing is ever set into detailed design and certainly before it's ever constructed because the last thing you want to do is build infrastructure that either doesn't function or doesn't function appropriately and have to demolish or rehabilitate it or repurpose it to some degree. It's a huge waste of time and money for, in most cases, taxpayers. So the ability to utilize these tools to come up with multiple options that you couldn't have done manually is a huge benefit for all the players in the ecosystem. Something non-obvious, though, that I would say is that a lot of people think about tools like these as replacing the job of, in our case, let's say an engineer. The software is just going to do it all. There's no need for an engineer anymore. And all the engineers are going to be out of business. They're going to have to go retire and right, flip, flip hamburgers for a living. Something that we have found is that a lot of times it's actually the most experienced engineers who get the biggest value from tools like this. So a lot of folks think it's like your, your sort of entry-level work, that sort of like repetitive, monotonous design work that's going to be replaced by AI. That may be true. It hasn't been true for us. What we've actually found is that experts in their field have so many interesting, innovative ideas that are in their heads that they'd like to be able to explore around doing things a bit differently or doing different combinations of stuff they've learned in the past to try to come up with a better outcome. But their challenge is that they don't have the budget or time to do it. Mm. So, so many engineers I've spoken to, the smartest people on earth that I've ever met, have said, your tool gave me the ability to as effectively assess options and innovations that I've had in my head for years, but I wasn't able to take the time 
to put it down on paper and create all the documentation for it to give it to an owner to say, hey, here's something that you could you, you should consider because I didn't have the time to do it. I wish I would have had that time, but now I do. And we've seen these designs actually come to fruition in the real world. Something that wouldn't have been considered otherwise, a smart engineer has said, hey, I think this is an option that we should consider. And I now have the time to do it because I've been able to use tools like yours to create all the data and documentation necessary to get my idea out into the world and prove its viability. And I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I, this is actually one of my favorite points of discussion, right? And this, this wild, wild west of AI, right? Is our engineers going to be replaced? Well, the, the first thing I say whenever I'm asked that question is who's signing and sealing, right? Because the laws today is they are written, right? Still require these projects to be completed under the supervision of a licensed engineer, right? So just by law, right? Engineers are not going away. And the second point is just like you, you, you know, pretty well said is this, this looking at these opportunities, right? That would have otherwise required some sort of skill set or time or budget that just wasn't there in the past, right? And, you know, I heard a quote the other day where you'll, you'll lose out on a lot of opportunity of like what AI can bring you if you're focused on having it do what you do today better mm. instead of looking at opportunities that it can now de-skill, right? And then put in the palm of your hand that you otherwise weren't able to do, right? Mm. And it sounds like you, you've kind of found the same through working with some of your either customers or, or end users. That's definitely true. The, the de-skill component is, is a really good one, as is the de-risking. So a lot of times an owner thinks about these tools as being risky. I don't want to try this new technology because something might fail or where has it been done before or whatever other objections people are going to throw you when you're trying a new, new technology. But this actually, in my mind and in practice, we've seen is a way to de-risk projects. So Nick, you mentioned like your, your, your whole focus right now is in parking garages. And so an asset owner, somebody who's, who, who is, you know, fronting the dollars to build, to design and, and construct one of these parking garages is thinking, just build me the same thing that has been built for the last 50 years that I know works, that has the same materials that I'm used to, right? That has the same footprint that I'm used to. I don't want to go crazy outside of the box. Okay, that's fine. I get it. As you said, Nick, these designs have to be sealed and insured. This building has to be insured. People's livelihoods depend on this parking garage not failing. But if you have tools like ours or other generative solutions or AI-enabled solutions, instead of just looking at that one option that that owner is so excited about and is so used to for the last 50 years, why not look at 100 or 1,000? Look at something that's been done in an earthquake-prone zone. Look at something that's been done in a more, uh, per perhaps maybe in a flood zone, somewhere that's been that's used different combinations of materials to do something that maybe requires less operations and maintenance over time. Maybe something that, for whatever reason, one, one way or another, you can incorporate new innovations in censoring so that you can better facilitate the movement of the cars, the parking of the cars, the in and out of the car. I mean, there's so many different innovations you can consider when you open your mind a bit and let these tools give you some of those pieces that you probably weren't thinking about before. And to, in my mind, it's a way of de-risking things. Let's see, risk it from you from a capital point of view, from an operations point of view. Um, so many, so many, basically so many ways to de-risk over the life cycle of that asset that people aren't thinking about today. And a lot of this innovation, right, is only going to come from, right, a, a new idea or a new way of thinking about things, right, which tends to let itself to startups, right? 
So why don't we talk about startups, but specifically raising capital for startups, right? Can you share your experience with closing a $20 million round of funding with Autodesk's backing? And what advice do you have for entrepreneurs looking to secure investment for their innovative ventures? My biggest piece of advice is that before you ever build anything, before you build your physical product, your prototype, before you code your first line of software, go to the person or people or company that you think will be your best customer and try to sell them on your idea. You're going to learn two things. First thing you're going to learn is that sales is a lot harder than you think it is. Can you even get in front of the right person that you want to talk to in the first place? You don't need a product to try to do that. And you're going to learn a whole lot about how difficult it can be to sell a good or service. The second thing to note is that if you do get in front of the person that you think is going to be your best customer and you pitch them on your beautiful idea for your startup, they're going to tell you, if you do it well, they're going to tell you exactly why they would or would not buy this thing and exactly what this thing should look like or should do or how it should function. And so when you go to raise capital, especially if you're at a seed stage before you've ever built a prototype, but you've already done your diligence in terms of here's the exact customer I'm going after and here's exactly what they're looking for. Here's exactly what the product needs to, to do or look like in order for them to buy. And here's, if you can get it, an LOI from them saying that if this thing exists, that they would buy it you're in a much better position to go and raise capital because you've effectively de-risked the hardest part about it, which is selling this thing, getting paying customers. So when it comes to you know our business and raising the $20 million round with Autodesk as an investor, you know we had raised two previous rounds of capital before that. And the reason we were able to do so was because to the earlier part of our interview, Nick, we had effectively de-risked the customer side of things because we were the customer for the software back in the day. The software was built by someone who had a problem that needed a solution, and we proved that it not only worked for them, the parent company at the time, but that it worked for other players in the ecosystem that we were working with. So we proved that we had product market fit, and we proved that people are willing to pay for it. And for an investor, that's really what they care about. Is someone going to buy this, and what am I going to get my my return on my invested capital? Absolutely. And you know, what they say in kind of startup world, right, is as soon as you think you've talked to enough people about your product, right, you probably want to go talk to a couple <laughs> or, and in some cases, right, a lot more, right, because, right, and, and you know, for, for the audience, right, there's all these terms in the startup, the, like, ecosystem, right, product market fit, total addressable market. The idea being, right, like Adam's saying, if you're going to build something, right, make sure, one, there's a market for it, two, and once you figure that out, that you have a crystal clear understanding of what the market wants to see, because ultimately, the market, and that's, right, your customers, end users, et cetera, are going to be the ones that dictate if your product is successful. Yes, that's right. And the worst thing that can happen is that you spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, either your own or others, friends and family, especially in the early stages, and years building something that nobody wants. That's a and, and I'm sure you've kind of seen a lot um, over the past couple of years, which brings me into our next question, right? So you're, in your journey from co-founding this VC-backed startup to leading digital water division at GE, how have you seen the landscape of technology and innovation evolve at AEC, right? And were there any differences in kind of being at that Fortune 500 company versus being at a startup? Yeah, I mean, ma- massive differences that we could, you know, spend probably a whole week talking about relative to big company versus 
startup mindset and and how they how they operate. Um, I'll tell you that some of the there there I'd say there are a couple of big changes I've seen in AEC specifically. So one change is that when I was a GE, a lot of times the AEC industry in many ways still are, but I think this is changing. They're they're hyper-focused on their specific aspect of the project. So if I'm designing a parking garage, as an example, all I'm focused on is building the best damn parking garage as I can. And while that's still true, I think that players in the industry are starting to understand that you can't just look at the parking garage in a silo. Because the parking garage has an impact on so many other things around it. It has an impact on the broader environment. It has an impact on traffic flows and traffic patterns. It probably has an impact on real estate prices. It certainly has an impact on the people that live around it. And so because of the, at the time it was called the industrial internet of things. Now I have no clue what the buzzword is, but basically the sensorization of our environment to understand the impacts of different equipment or assets in the built world and their impact on everything else. People are starting to come to understand that nothing exists in a silo. Everything exists as a relationship to something else. And so I'm seeing all these different tools pop up, either built inside of architecture engineering firms or by startups that are helping people better understand the impacts of a design or a constructed project on the things around it before that thing is built. So that's one thing that I've seen. The second thing that I've seen is an appetite for engineers specifically to bring more innovative workflows into their organizations. So historically, it's been you know, typically some dude, old guy who's been in the industry for 30, 40, 50 years, who's sitting in a back corner in some office somewhere, who's married to his Excel spreadsheet in the way things have been done forever. And that generation is retired. And I've seen it. I mean, really, I've seen the last 10 years. I've seen that gen go from the ones who hold the keys to the castle to a group of younger individuals who are bringing technology into the forefront of the way that they design their projects. And so we're seeing more cloud-based tools. We're seeing more collaborative tools. We're seeing tools where the owner and the engineer can collaborate in real time on project documentation. And I've seen technology come in from the very beginning of the workflow. So like project management tools all the way through detail design and then what's being called digital twins. So you actually have a digital representation of the infrastructure based on the data that's coming from it in real time in creating this whole, like, we'll call it like a cyclical, a cyclical environment for all this data to flow through. And I, I, I honestly feel like it's only been in the last, like maybe even five years where I'm starting to see these concepts come up more and more, whereas no one was talking about this stuff 10 or 15 years ago. And, and I'll, I'll focus specifically like on your comment, right? This kind of generational shift from let's call it like the old guard to maybe the, the up and comers. Right. And, and the first thing I'll say is Going back to your comment about, right, that not quite peer programming, but pairing a, right, a very experienced and knowledgeable engineer with a software developer, right, to translate what's in their brain to, to code, right? But for a lot of those older individuals or those more experienced individuals, like they are still very, very, very important, right, to what's going on in, in today's kind of technological advancement of everything, because they still have a very good understanding of, right, basic concepts, the experience they bring to the table, how projects put together. And what I like to say is I, I would actually argue they play a very critical role and it's even more important now because they can help, right? Obviously mentor and guide the younger generation along and then see 
have to see through this um, implementation of technology, even if they aren't the ones doing the implementation themselves, because that practical knowledge and experience they have is still very important to getting everything um, put together from the software side. It's critical. Completely agree. And, and, you know, and right, there's, you know, there'll be fear about right, taking jobs. And I've even heard say some people, hey, I'm retiring in the next five years. You know, I'm not it, like, I don't really care about like all this stuff that's going on. Right. But what I would say to those, those people who are, you know, going to be retiring in the next five, seven, 10 years is you have a great opportunity to continue to, to mentor the younger generation and kind of make sure that this technological adoption is, is done. Right. And I just, I, I don't like to exclude this group of more experienced individuals because I still think they have a lot of value to, to. Yep. No question. So, you know, that being said, right. And we've talked a little bit about generative design and kind of the like practical applications today, what you guys are doing in your company. Right. But could you discuss the potential impact of generative design and sustainability and efficiency and critical infrastructure project, how it aligns with broader industry trends, like, and kind of what the, the future is going to look like. So I will I will talk about this in real terms uh, from what we have witnessed going on in other parts of the world in them being 20, 30, maybe 40 years ahead of the U.S. specifically. So when I think about the future, I, I think about like there's all these call them bright spots of places where things I think are going really well and people are introducing technology in ways that are pretty revolutionary. And a simple example of this would be the U.K. water industry. So the United Kingdom has a maybe a dozen water utilities that operate all of the nation's or country's water wastewater infrastructure. In the U.S., we're looking at 50,000 individual water wastewater utilities that are responsible for delivering water and wastewater services to the population of the United States. So a couple dozen or a dozen versus 50,000. So those couple, those dozen in the U.K. are regulated by a group called Offwat. And one of the things that Offwat has mandated the utilities do is become carbon neutral by 2030. And if you come to the States and you go walk in your local water utility door and you knock on the supervisor's door and say, hey, what's your take on becoming carbon neutral by 2030? They're going to laugh you out of the room if they even know what that means. No one has a clue. So when I think about the future of critical infrastructure projects and what's on the really, frankly, immediate horizon, at least I hope so, it's using tools, digital tools, physical tools to better assess the impacts of projects before they are designed and constructed in ways we aren't thinking about them today. And so the example I would use is thinking about designing or building a wastewater treatment plant and having one of the outcomes being that when it is built and when it is operating, that it is carbon neutral. That is a very simple example and a very real one. Today in the U.S., we're not doing that. We build the same stuff we built the last 50 or 60 years, and we don't give any thought in most cases to what this thing is going to look like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, not only in terms of carbon neutrality, but as climate changes, as population changes, as regulations change, we are building that type of resilient infrastructure. So that's where I see the biggest opportunity for us in using tools like Transcends is that we can design resilient infrastructure today instead of waiting 30 years when a thing is broken and having to rehabilitate it or demolish it and rebuild something new. 
It's horribly inefficient. It's a horrible use of our, our, of our time and funding, and we need to be doing a better job. And like you mentioned earlier, right now, we, through, through tools like generative design, we have the ability to display and showcase all of these options to say, hey, like, what if the population changes, right? What if something, something about the climate changes? And it sounds like through these tools, you're able to right, get a better peek into the future, potentially, although nobody can predict it. Yes, you're spot on. I love to use the analogy of giving someone a crystal ball. You, you're right. You can't predict the future. We have no clue what's going to happen. But if we can assess 10x, 20x, 30x, 100x more options, we have a better shot at accurately capturing what the future might be. And if we can do that, then we're going to build something that's more resilient and likely more future-proof than what we're doing today. Who knows, maybe in due time, right, with the way these right models are, are growing and the pace of technology is advancing, maybe it's not 10 or 100x, right? 1,000, 10,000, right? Many more multiples. So exciting to to see what's ahead. But Adam, why don't we, why don't we shift gears a little bit more to your personal life, right? So beyond work, you've you mentioned that you're involved in mentoring at risk youth and philanthropy. How do you see the intersection of your professional work and your philanthropic efforts and what drives you to give back? I think it's important that if you're a person who's in a position to be able to give of their their time, their skills, their treasures, whatever that may be that you do, because we owe it to our the existing generation, but also future generations to make this world a better place, um, hopefully when we leave it than, than what it was when we came into it. And so for me, what I believe around the future of of the health of our planet and the health of our the future generations to come is that we have to upskill the the young the young the youth the folks that are a generation or two you know behind us and as i think about giving back to that community it's in it's in mentorship so just life lessons things i've learned I feel like i'm now the old man sitting in a rocking chair like hey listen you know listen to me listen to me about all these crazy stories that I've learned and try not to make the mistakes that I did, but also just exposing them to different things. So I mentioned that a big turning point in my career was being exposed to entrepreneurship in college. If I can expose a young person to a career in architecture, engineering, or construction, or expose them to software, expose them to startups, or just help them see that there's a future for them that maybe they didn't think about before, that's a huge win to me. Awesome. And right, like, and kind of a common theme, right, is you know, well, let's just take water, wastewater as an example, right? Like how many people rely on that specific function, right? To just have clean and safe drinking water. You're giving back to a community in, in that way, but then more directly with your efforts. So at the end of the day, it just sounds like it's, it's the advancement of society, helping people out and just generally being a good person. Mm-hmm. You got it. And what, what final piece of advice would you offer to aspiring professionals, entrepreneurs looking to make meaningful impact in both their communities and their careers? I would say f- find something that you enjoy doing. So I'm not going to give this typical, like, do something you're passionate about. I think it's really hard to find something you're passionate about. In many cases, it's not work. <laughs> so I would say find something that you enjoy doing that you're good at and just focus on leveling up there. So you're better off growing a skill set and something that you're already good at to become great and trying to be good at something that's maybe a weakness or something you don't enjoy doing. So the second that you find something you enjoy and the second that you find something that that really resonates with you, go all in on it and don't give up. Find that thing, go full bore, and chances are you're going to not only have a meaningful career, but you'll probably have a very lucrative career and one that makes a, a real difference in the world. 
and right and that that lucrativeness whether in right many aspects right financial well-being helping others that that lucrative career can actually set you up and put you in a position to give back way more than you ever saw possible and you see that with a lot of successful entrepreneurs and and people who have done really well for themselves so even if you're not at that stage yet right just keep hanging on because one day you you will get there but adam thank you so much again for joining us today if our listeners want to reach out to you to connect what's the best way to reach you check me out adam tank on linkedin or adamtank.com either way you can send me a dm or send me an email and i will respond guaranteed appreciate it adam again a pleasure having you on and until next time we'll um we'll uh, we'll see you soon i'm sure thanks nick take care please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at aectechpodcast.com there you will find a summary of key points discussed in today's episode as well as links to any of the resources websites or books mentioned during this episode until next time i wish you the best in all of your engineering and technology endeavors thank you